Guys, let's pray and get into it. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us here today and uh, hopefully with hearts prepared to worship you and to receive your word. So please, please uh, give us wisdom, uh, give us understanding, clarity of thought, focused on you, and uh, guide us into truth. Help us to love one another and to love you as your word ministers to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. Text for this morning, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. That will cover the whole context. So please follow along as I read verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we received honor, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, the title of today's sermon is The Witness and the Word Proclaiming the Power of Christ's return, and that is what Peter has in view here. So he's kind of uh, shifted topics a little bit as we opened up. He talked about um, the top, the subject of our growth in Christ, right? It sort of stems off from study of First Peter, standing firm in true grace, and now, of course, we are exploring the topic in depth of growing in the true grace of God, that we continue to, to flourish and strengthen uh, ourselves where we stand, and of course, that is in grace. Love that imagery of Psalm 1, right? Like a tree planted firmly by streams of water, right? Yielding fruit in its season. That is the great picture of the Christian who is firmly rooted and anchored in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so in those first 15 verses, we go through what could be classified as a lot of introductory material. And we are introduced to the various uh, virtues that we are to cultivate in our own lives as well as the community of the church, but most importantly, understanding very clearly what it is that makes that all possible. And so Peter is constantly pointing us to how Christ gives us all of those resources, and then closes off that section, especially in verses 12 through 15, with some, with some dying pastoral counsel. And one of the clearest themes that emerges from that is the necessity of remembering, right? Not remembering based on happenstance, but remembering as a, a matter of purposefully recalling or calling to mind the things that God has done for us in Christ those bedrock gospel teachings that are key for us to grow spiritually and to persevere. Now, of course, we remind ourselves often that we find ourselves in a similar situation today as First Peter's hearers. We have the problem of persecution, especially that of marginalization from a community. From, and that's, that's the problem from without, but then we have the problem from within. We have no shortage of false teachers. We have no shortage of false gospels. It's easy to find them if you, if you were to look. And so it is so important in the mind of Peter that we call to mind those things in order to counteract the assault that comes from both within and without, those internal and external threats. And really, we can narrow that down to one particular thing, one particular weapon in our arsenal that defends against those things as well as puts us on the offensive. And that is the truth. We have the truth. We must never forget that. 
It is the truth by which we grow. It is the truth that we proclaim. And of course, that is an easy path into our next theme. That is proclaiming the power of Christ's return. When we proclaim the power of Christ's return, we are teaching and proclaiming something that is, we could say, is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. As all of the apostles, Jesus Himself taught very clearly is that He would return. And as regards today's context, we want to understand that in two particular ways, right? When it comes to Christ's return, Peter frames it thusly. You could call this maybe two pillars, right? Two pillars, and those things are the witness and the Word. And so the first section, that is verses 16 through 18, speaks of the witness. That is the eyewitness of the Apostle Peter. He says he was there. He saw the Lord Jesus Himself in all of His majesty. And so, in that sense, we have the witness. The witness that proclaims the power of Christ's return. Then secondly, we have the Word itself. That is, the written Word. The revealed written Word of God. The Scriptures that tell us very clearly regarding the power of Christ's return. And that is in verses 19-21. through So today, what we have planned is to make it through the first section. We're going to talk about the witness the witness as far as it is involved in proclaiming the power of Christ's return. And I think this is very important for us. It's very practical because we are all witnesses. We are all called to testify regarding the truth of the Gospel. Regarding the continuing work that Christ is currently involved in in subjecting all things to Himself. That current work that involves proclaiming a life-giving message to those who are dead to those who are in sin. And we are called to proclaim the way of righteousness. We are to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. And so I would hope that especially in this section, it all hits home. That we are witnesses. The Lord has never been without His witnesses. He has never been without His truth-tellers. Peter is one, and yet he entrusts this truth to his hearers. And that includes us. Even if we were not there with Him, we proclaim the same message. So we're going to break this down today into four parts. Four hopefully discernible parts as it regards proclaiming the power, proclaiming Christ's return. So the first is this. We'll go through all four of them and then knock them down one by one. So here they are. First, proclaiming the power of Christ's return is to be a witness for the truth. Secondly, it is to be a witness of His glory. Thirdly, it is to be a witness for His kingdom. And fourthly, a witness for His presence. So a witness for the truth, a witness for His glory, a witness for His kingdom, and a witness for His presence. So if I forget any of those, you guys can remind me while I'm up here. So let's get into the text. Very, very important text this morning. And I will say from the outset that when I talk about the coming of Christ, I am probably not talking about the coming that you may have in mind. Typically we have the first advent, and then we have also in mind the second advent, and then of course there's preaching the gospel of the nations in between. Based on the context of this passage, I believe that the coming that is in view has to do, as I've mentioned before, and based very strongly on this context, is a coming of Christ in judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. And I would say, I would tell you and urge you to patience because we will not flesh out everything in this one sermon, nor will we do that the next. There's, the coming of the Lord will, um, will appear in various other passages in this book, and we'll cover it in greater depth as we go along. So I would say in the meantime, definitely do your own study, do your own homework, look at these passages, right? Be Bereans, especially in cases like this. You know, go and search the Scriptures to see if what I am saying is so. Um, This is a very difficult topic, but I think the Scripture is clear to where we can take a particular word or a particular theme and understand it clearly. Now let me also encourage you with this. 
just because it is being, that the coming of Christ is being explained here as a historical fact, as something that has already happened, in no way minimizes our call to faithful gospel witness. I realize that there is a lot of excitement and anticipation that is wrapped up in, in more popular views of eschatology. There's a lot we look forward to, but I would say that even understanding Christ has already come in judgment in no way mitigates, in no way suppresses the, the joy and the anticipation of knowing Christ now and being a witness for Him now. In fact, I would argue that there is much more excitement, much more anticipation to behold um, in light of today's interpretation. So, uh, all of those qualifications out of the way, uh, I would be uh, happy to further discuss this with you guys, happy to do even more study, just so it's clear. That's the main thing. We want these things to be clear, and so I would say we're going to take the long path, we're going to play the long game, and as we study these texts and these passages in chunks, it is my hope and it is, it is my... Uh, uh, anticipation that these truths will come clear and that you will also take them and be very excited about the gospel. We have a lot to look forward to. We say this time and time again that uh, as we are the Lord's people, we are His church, His community, there is so much to look forward to and that there is no reason to be unbelieving or downcast about the current affairs of this world because they are simply a reflection of the promise that Christ made regarding the gospel work that he would do and the church that he will build. So there is much work to do, so keep all of that in mind as we go through this text. So we'll see how, how far uh, we get today. But of course, the first thing is being a witness for the truth. Proclaiming the power of Christ's return involves being a witness for the truth. So let's look carefully at verse 16. We are witness for the truth, and Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So point one really covers the first part of that verse. And, and, and in witnessing for the truth, there's a positive and negative aspect of it, of course. First, the, the, is the positive aspect is, the, is what we know to be so. And what we know to be so, fundamentally, is gospel truth. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is present, reigning King, exercising judgment and salvation over the nations. And we are called to tell all men to repent and believe and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. We give, him, we give them good news. But with that comes an additional responsibility. It's also weeding out, burning the chaff away, if you will, of all the error, of all the additions, all the, all the stuff that tries to cloud out the purity of that message. And one of the main things that the apostles were dealing with in the first century church were what Peter classifies as cleverly devised tales. So, you had to, there, so automatically there was a distinction that had to be made. Remember, throughout redemptive history, even before Adam and Eve fell, we see the Word of God distorted. We see it added to. We see it changed. We see it manipulated. Right. If for no other reason than to cast God in an untrustworthy light, right. so that we doubt His goodness, so that we doubt His provision and promises. We battle that today. Yea, hath God said, the enemy continues to question. And so it prevails upon all who identify themselves with Christ to separate truth from error. And Peter makes this very clear. He says, we did, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Note that he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. And you notice that most of chapter 1 is a combination of that. Several fours, several therefores, as if what he says always takes the previous statement or statements into account. And so, what is he doing here? Well, in verses 12 through 15, he says, Remember, call these things to mind, right? Strengthen yourself with them. I'm about to die, and I want to do all that I can as long as I am in this earthly tent and be diligent in my ministry to you so that you will be able to call these things to mind. Well, he says, Well, these things that I am telling you and encouraging you to call to mind were not cleverly devised tales. So, Peter is 
reaffirming, we are not making these things up. Paul does the same thing. He'll say something very profound and then he'll say, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. In case there are those doubting Thomases out there who are saying, oh, Paul's, Paul's a talebearer. He's a babbler. He's making these things up. It's once again to remind us that this is truth. That these, this is truth given to the apostles. They're not making this up. It was revealed to them from the Lord Himself. And so they, in obedience, passed that truth on. And in doing so, he's also identifying the fact that there are others out there running rampant who are following cleverly devised tales. Right? And you think about this. When you cleverly devise something, it isn't, it isn't some kind of shoot-from-the-hip uh, tale that you make up. When something is cleverly devised, there is, there is strategy to it. There is engineering. Right? There is creativity. There is a sense of human wisdom that goes into it. Note here, clever. The person who makes these things up thinks they are clever. And they've invested their time in it. See, these things don't spring up overnight. And yet they're always meant to distract the believer away from the purity of the Gospel and all the blessings and hope that we have in Christ. And in this context, there is something very key and I think very sinister. Is that these cleverly devised tales are meant to distract from the promise of Christ's, of Christ's soon return. That is, His return in judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. And of course, some time has gone by. We've mentioned this before, and we'll mention it again in ensuing lessons. Is that some time has gone by since the Lord has ascended and sent His Holy Spirit to grow the New Covenant church. Time has gone by. Well, what about this generation seeing these things, Peter? And so as time has gone on, those who are not truly in the faith begin to fall away, but desiring at the same time uh, to, to place people under their tutelage and instruction and even power, they start making things up. And that's what we can conclude about this. These, these things may have a kernel of truth, but they are always twisted in such a way as to be stories. They're preaching fiction. They're preaching a gospel that doesn't save. They're, they're, they're preaching a Christ that does not redeem. And I would say, too, they are preaching a Christ who will not execute His judgment in this world. Does that sound familiar at all to what we deal with today? When we urge men to repent, knowing the fear of the Lord, we, what? we persuade men. We plea with men to turn to God away from unbelief and to embrace Christ by faith, the only means of salvation. And yet often the, the response is one of apathy, casual disinterest, complete disinterest in engaging and questioning their own assumptions and presuppositions. And so what do these folks do? Well, they have to make something up. Because everyone has, a, has an underlying moral system. Everyone has underlying presuppositions about life and reality. And so once you deviate from Scripture's view of life and reality, you are forced to make things up. See, nothing new under the sun. Once you deviate from God's Word, you have to make things up. And this is exactly what Peter is facing. But he is not disheartened. He has the truth. He is committed to the truth. And it is the truth that change, changes lives. But these are simply made up. Paul warns us about this, and I think he also gives a very clear picture as to the consequences of these things, of these fables, of these cleverly devised tales. In 1 Timothy 1.4, remember Timothy's the struggling teaching elder of the church of Ephesus. He says to Timothy not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculations rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. What does this do in this case? Well, these cleverly devised tales, for one, rob us of the certainty of the Gospel. Christians should be the last people on earth to speculate. We should be the most certain people in this world. We are certain of Christ. We are certain of the truth of the Gospel. 
We are not standing around speculating about it, wondering whether or not it could be true, what, you know, saying even, oh, I, I, I believe that this, this probably is the truth, but I don't know for sure. That's speculation, and that does no good. He says it gives rise to mere speculation, rather than, so he puts speculation against furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So speculation does not advance the kingdom of God. When we preach the gospel, we preach with certainty. That's why we can preach with boldness and confidence. It's often confused as arrogance, but so be it. But one of the reasons we can do that is because the Holy Spirit Himself gives us a certainty regarding the truth of the gospel. We are not called to speculate. We rather are to proclaim things about which we are certain. So we don't want to be robbed of its certainty, nor do we want our focus upon it to be ruined. This is another thing that happens, right? We pay attention. When we pay attention to stories, right? Story after story, things made up, endless genealogies, right? It ruins our focus upon the work of the Gospel. That is not desirable either. And yet it is these simple things that can distract the church from what matters most. Paul, once again, so important is this to Paul, keep that in mind that he reminds Timothy of it again. In the second letter, chapter 4, verses 3-4, through four, he says this, For of a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and so will turn aside to myths. So it's robbing them of their certainty of the gospel, ruining their focus upon the gospel, but also rejecting the truth of the gospel, which is the very thing we are all called to proclaim with certainty and confidence. What is happening here? They will not endure sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? The doctrine that was delivered and taught by the apostles, which points to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, it says, wanting to have their ears tickled. Don't tell us any of this stuff about Jesus anymore. We want to hear other things, right? Pleasing things. We want to be entertained or whatever reason they may have. And it says they will accumulate for themselves teachers. Not just one, but several. Kind of going from one to the next, just so they can hear what they want. Rejects the truth of the Gospel. Rejects the hard truths of Christianity, of Christian doctrine. I mean, think about that. That's why if you read back this very chapter, see, we saw verses 3 and 4. But in verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. So if anyone solemnly charges you with those words, you should shudder a little bit. You should shake in your boots a little bit. That's a pretty fearful statement. With God and the heavenly host as my witness, I am calling you to do this very thing. And he says this, preach the word. <laughs> right? He's a, Jesus Christ is a judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom... So there is something about Christ's coming, His appearing, that they are looking forward to. And he says this, in light of that, preach the Word. So you don't, you don't have to change anything. You don't have to do anything differently. You don't have to reinvent yourself, Timothy. Just preach the Word. Preach the truth. But be ready in season and out of season. Re reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You see, what's, what we know is that this is already going on. When Paul tells Timothy, the time will come, he is identifying a time soon on the horizon, not something hundreds or thousands of years down in human history. It is, it is about to happen to you, Timothy, and so the way to counteract that is to proclaim the truth. Witness for the truth. And that is how you proclaim the power of Christ. But with great patience and instruction. Here's another one. He tells Titus how to deal with it. So how do we deal with it? In uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, this, speaking of the Cretans, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Okay, sound in the faith, but not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Okay, so there's that two-pronged approach. Positively, teach them the apostles' doctrine. Teach them the Christian faith. But also, make sure that they're not getting distracted by Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So these Jewish myths, you have to understand, were not confined only to Jerusalem. 
As the gospel was preached outwardly from Jerusalem, so the Judaizers followed. Because I think they were convinced that their religion was being hijacked instead of perfected in Christ. And so where the apostles went, they followed and stirred up all kinds of trouble. And this is on the island of Crete, mind you, right? It's gone across the sea. It's everywhere. And so Paul tells us how to deal with it. But to keep those cleverly devised tales at bay with the truth and not to entertain them for even a minute because they are distracting and destructive to the church. So be on guard against that. But that is the witness to the truth. Here's the second thing, and it's found in the latter half of verse 16. And that is the witness for His glory. Okay? There's many things that, can, that glory can describe. But let's see what we mean here. So he says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there Peter is using that very important word again. Knowledge, one of the key themes of 2 Peter. We knowledgeified you, right? We, we made it known to you. We taught you very clearly, very comprehensively, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this was a true thing. This wasn't something we made up, even though we're, we're being accused of that, since Christ has not yet returned. But then he says, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So, so here we come to one of, the, one of the key words of our study this morning. We'll see how far we get through it. By God's grace, we will. But this is the word, in verse 16, coming from the Greek word parousia, perusia, however you may want to uh, pronounce it. But this is a very key word in understanding what the first century church was expecting in regard to Christ's activity. Right? So this word parousia is very, very important. Now, most of the time it's translated just this way, coming. Right? And so we say, well, what does that mean? As I mentioned before, typically it is thought to refer to a future second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are not in any way saying that that is not what Scripture teaches. I believe there is a second coming. There will be a time of when Christ appears in a particular fashion where He will hand the kingdom over to the Father, where all things are subjected to Him, where all enemies are put under His feet. We call that the consummation. right? Where Christ in heaven and earth is all in all. Okay? Where He has put down all of His enemies and all the elect are gathered to him. We definitely look forward to that day, but it is not for us to speculate when that day will happen. But what we want to clarify, we, the reason we want to spend some time on this is because peop, what normally happens is that we look at a passage like this and do not attempt in any way to relate it to the time in which Peter is writing, and so we relegate it to the future. But the subject that Peter is, is addressing is pertinent not only to the first century church, but pertinent to us as well. Um, and we'll probably uh, get into that to some detail. But like I said, regarding this word, uh, perusia or perusia, we won't get into it in exhaustive detail. That is a special study for another time. But I at least want to introduce this to you so that we understand the context. Now, another thing we have to say is this came up quite a bit in 1 Peter. There is, there is a lot of talk about Christ returning, Christ coming, you know, uh, the end of all things being near. And those passages were very difficult to wrestle with, and we will continue to wrestle with them in the book of 2 Peter. But by and large, I think he is referring to the same event and the same reality. So, as parousia is often translated and understood as coming or as an arrival, it is perhaps more accurate to say that parousia also refers to a presence. It means to be alongside something. So it's not, something, not some instantaneous showing up where there's sort of a come and go type of situation. Christ showed up, did what He was going to do, and then He disappeared. Or Christ showed up, did what He was going to do, and then He went back to heaven. And so He's there, and we're here, and hopefully one day He'll come back, hopefully in our lifetime. I want us to get rid of that paradigm. Because I truly believe that the Scripture teaches that with Christ showing up in judgment in this regard, with His parousia, 
His presence remains with us, right? In fact, I would even go so far as to say that in this, we are in the age of parousia. We are in the age of Christ's abiding presence, both to judge His enemies and to save and deliver His elect. Okay. So keep those two things in mind. They're very important. So it's not just a matter of, oh, He's there. Christ is coming. Here He is. He's come and He's here to stay. So in that, we understand parousia referring to His presence as much as it does to His arrival. So we see this um, offered by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.10. Listen to this. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. So Paul isn't saying, the way that I arrived, the manner in which I came was unimpressive and you know, contemptible. No, my, my presence here, my current presence with the Corinthian church is undermined and insulted and called into question. So just to understand that there is some semantic range uh, to this word, especially depending upon context, but we'll make some of these qualifications later. So, as it refers to Jesus Christ in this context, we can understand parousia as the presence of Christ, listen to this, the presence of Christ in all of His royal and sovereign power to both judge and save. So I'll say it again. Parousia is the presence of Christ in all of His royal and sovereign power to both judge and save. And of course, that's important because that keeps us from looking for some kind of sudden and instantaneous reappearing of the Lord Jesus. So we see parousia as an ongoing reality that Christ is already present as King of kings and Lord of lords and as ruler of the kings of the earth. We find that out in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation. And he's currently exercising judgment upon those who reject him, both individuals and nations, and salvation upon all who believe. Right? So, parousia is not an isolated event in history. could better be understood actually as this present age. So we are in the age of the presence of Christ. That is the age to come that the apostles and Christ himself spoke of. I believe we are in the age to come. We are in the age of the growing advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so with that, that's our, initial, that's our initial understanding of the parousia. And so this reality was being called into question. And so when Peter says we did not follow cleverly devised tales, he's putting aside any assertion that what they are doing regarding Christ's presence and His showing up to judge is some kind of is some kind of fairy tale. All of these things keep in mind. So he says this, it's not just the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter's not talking about two different things here. Understand this is simply um, the powerful coming or the coming in power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not just showing up, right? He's showing up in all of his sovereign power and authority. That's very important to understand in contrast to the first advent. When Christ showed up in the first advent, He did not show up in power as He will a second time. Remember, He showed up, manifest in human flesh, you know, reveals, reveals the Father, preaches the Gospel. But in a sense, He came in humility. He came in the weakness of flesh. Right? He came to die for sinners. If you flipped over to Romans chapter 1 really quickly, Paul mentions in that chapter that when Jesus was raised from the dead, He was declared the Son of God with power. So it's not that the declaration itself was powerful, it was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is powerful. Declaring that Jesus Christ is the powerful one. And as He's raised in power, He will return in power. So what does this power speak of? That when He returns, He will return in all of His resurrection glory, all of His resurrection power. So in His first coming, He comes to die as the Lamb of God, and when He returns, He returns as the Lion of Judah, never to die again. So you thought He meant business the first time. He means business when He comes in judgment. 
So just a quick sampling of passages just so we can kind of understand what it means that Jesus will show up in judgment. I mean, these passages are found all over the New Testament. And keep in mind as well, even when they talk about the coming of Christ or a particular arrival, although it's mostly talking about His return to Jerusalem in judgment, it's not always talking about that. There, quite frankly, there are certain passages and I don't know exactly what they mean. But I think there is enough reference in Scripture that we can narrow it down to say that it is primarily talking about this. And so what is, what is left for the church to do than to witness that glorious reality, that glorious appearing? Because right? he, as He returns, He returns as Sovereign Lord. Remember, He returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we'll get into these passages. He returns especially to judge, to judge unbelief. And keep in mind that however He chooses to exercise His power when He returns, He does all of this irresistibly. That's something we have to recognize about the Lord Jesus Christ. When He reveals Himself in power, when He is unveiled in all of His majesty, He does this irresistibly. As the Scriptures say, when He returns, He returns to break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. I would even say that even right now, Jesus is doing that. He's doing that to the various kingdoms and structures that array themselves against Him. It's a hard word to give that Jesus will destroy His enemies. But we would see it as a word of glory. It represents Christ in all of His sovereign majesty and expresses the fact that He deserves to be worshipped and honored and feared and loved and believed in. And this coming of Christ is even foretold in the, in the Old Testament. This is not just a New Testament teaching. Consider what is spoken of even after the initial destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Important historical date. But even after their return to the land, listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Malachi. Chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so you're thinking, oh no, there's another one on the horizon? This just happened a little while ago. Oh, but it's going to happen again. Go back a chapter in Malachi 3, verse 4, it says this, Who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears. Right? So there's another judgment day on the horizon. And by all appearances, it's a judgment upon the Israelites. And so we take that passage and use it as a guide that this, this is something that is being foretold. And now, this event is right at the door. And so if you turn... Our starting point will be in Matthew 24. Now, several of these passages we have gone over at one time or another, but it helps us establish a framework of what exactly Peter has in mind. And so Peter is no doubt referring to what he saw on the mountain, but also what the Lord Himself told him. So a good point of this is in Matthew 24. We'll be in here for a few passages. But this represents the fulfillment of this great and terrible day of the Lord that Malachi prophesied. So in verse 3, it says this, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these signs, or when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, some would split these events. I personally think that this is speaking concerning one event. But the main thing here is, what will be the sign of your coming. So obviously, the disciples had heard enough to where they expected this from Jesus. Some kind of return in power. And of the end of the age. So we know that. They're asking Him about it. And of course, Jesus proceeds to describe to those things what will happen. And you go down to verse 27, and we understand that this appearance will be an appearance in judgment. In verse 27, he says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So this isn't something that we look at and say, okay, when this is literally when this is fulfilled, we will look to the east and we will see lightning flash. Then we will look to the west and see also lightning flash. 
And unless it is fulfilled in exactly that manner, it's not fulfilled. But wait a minute. This is simply judgment language. This is where, I mean, the Lord Jesus knows His own Scripture. So a couple ways that this is, uh, a couple passages where He draws. Exodus 9, 23-24. Talks about the Lord sending thunder and hail and fire raining down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Did this literally happen? Absolutely. But when Jesus draws upon this passage, what we understand is that this is judgment language. And so when Jesus makes this appearing as He is describing in Matthew 24, it is appearing in judgment where He will smite His enemies. And so it says in verse 24 of Exodus 9, there was hail and fire and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So Jesus uses the same language. He says there's going to be a great tribulation, right? Such as will ne- will ne- has never been seen and will never be seen again. Same thing. It's going to be terrible. In Psalm 144, verse 6, we read this. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and confuse them. So in this parousia, we find that Jesus Himself is present in judgment. Now, if you're still there in Matthew 24, go down to verse 37. And Peter is going to address this very shortly himself. Jesus says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. So, of course, we take that verse, Son of Man, we go back to Daniel 7, and we see the the great cosmic vindication of the Messiah, of Jesus. And this passage is where Daniel 7 is fulfilled. We've been through that before, so no need to rehash it in depth here. But he says they will be just like the days of Noah. So more judgment language. But here's the important thing. This coming of Christ, as he describes it, is mentioned ten times at least in this passage, or in this chapter. And so in verse 34, keep in mind, this is what really ties everything together for us. He says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, every other time that Jesus mentions this generation in the Gospel of Matthew, He is talking to the present generation. That first century generation of Jews. So why do we go down this rabbit trail? Simply to establish, and I think importantly so, that what Peter is describing is a return of Christ in judgment that this generation, if they believed the words of Jesus Christ, were to anticipate being fulfilled. And that is what is being denied. That is what is being written off of cleverly devised tales. So we go beyond Matthew 24. Paul is expecting it. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 19-20, we read this, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Of course they would be a crown of exaltation. The, the, the Thessalonians, along with other churches, were being afflicted. They were being persecuted by the naysayers who were denying the Lordship of Christ. Denying judgment. Some were even doing the opposite, saying, oh, it has already happened. But he says, you're our crown of exaltation in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming, for you are our glory and joy. So Paul was looking forward to a historical moment already prophesied where Jesus would return. And that would be a cause for exaltation, a cause for praise. Because the words of the apostles and the churches who believe them would be vindicated. Also, write down this, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect, here it is, that the day of the Lord has come. See, the day of the Lord had been prophesied about regarding this particular judgment. And so here's the opposite error, right? Not just the error that, oh, this is a fairy tale, Jesus isn't going to come back. But now here we have the assertion that it's already happened. And he's saying, no, don't be disturbed and know who he's talking to. The first century church. 
they were expecting this to happen. They were expecting the coming of Christ as was taught by Jesus and His apostles. And so they were told to persevere. The Lord would return in their own lifetime, in their generation. So listen to James 5, 7-8. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the, pre- the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your heart. See, they're getting antsy, right? They're starting to wonder, is this word going to come true? But then he says this, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. So if any of you hears, hears the word near describing something that is going to happen, what are you going to conclude? but I am at least going to live to see this. I mean, think about where we were, and here's here's a good illustration that happened sometime in 2018. And and we Southern Californians rejoiced in this because we heard, we heard it prophesied that the coming of in and out was near. Now, what were we supposed to think about that when we heard near? That it was going to be soon, like in our lifetime, presumably within a few years. We weren't saying, oh, you mean a couple thousand years from now? No, this was a word for us immediately because God loves us and wants us to be happy. So we were expecting it, right? We were expecting to see that built, right? In the same way, those who heard these verses were expecting to hear about this. Because this was, I mean, even though it was local to Jerusalem, Trust me, the entire, there would be a shakeup in the entire Roman Empire as Jews and Christians alike were scattered abroad. Right? So how they understood this mattered immensely. But he says, hey, the coming of the Lord is near. There's another passage that said he's right at the door. It's Jesus himself. When this happens, I'm right at the door. Right? What does right at the door mean? He's about to kick it down in judgment. We never, we, there's no sense in which we have to conclude that this is a long way off, but that it was about to happen, and from our reference point, it already has happened. The Apostle John, right, in uh, his first epistle, his first letter, uh, chapter 2, I believe, verse 28, Now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame, at his coming. So he's saying, don't be like those who, you know, who are wishy-washy, who fall away because you haven't seen him arrive yet. Persevere. Abide in him so that you may stand confident, so that you might not be ashamed over your unbelief when he does appear. Revelation 1.1, the things which must soon take place. Right? Verse 3, blessed be the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For of a time is what? Near. It's all over the place. Revelation 22, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. It's right on the verge of that amazing visitation in which he would destroy his enemies and yet vindicate his own name, his own word, and his own people. That's what's going on there. So these are not cleverly devised tales, friends. This is, this is the truth, and we find it all over Scripture. There was no one in that time who had any reason to remain unbelieving. All the apostles spoke of it. Jesus Christ Himself spoke of it. And we are called to believe it and proclaim it. And Peter, going back to the text, says, Rather than being a cleverly devised tale, no, we're telling you the truth regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They saw it. And of course, they are talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw it. We were there, right? That's one witness, right? Along with James and John. So there's three individual witnesses to Christ's Transfiguration, we read that in our um, uh, text for reading today, Scripture reading today. So we know that the Apostle Peter is referring to that. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Probably remembers it, remembers it very clearly. Now, draw your attention to 
Mark 9, and then there's Luke 9, and then there's Matthew 17. So in all three, the first three Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, this is documented very clearly. Right? And the testimony is very, the testimonies are, are very similar. But note what, note what Christ says in each, each time before this episode, there's a common thread. So in Matthew 16.28, He says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Okay. There are some standing right here. In Mark 9, Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with what? Power. So the same thing is being described here. The, 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 the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, or Mark 9 rather, it says, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In Luke 9, verses 26 through 27, he says this For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So in each case, Jesus tells them they will not taste death until He returns in power and glory. And then it's followed by this narrative where they go up to this mountain and Jesus is transfigured before them. And what I think we can draw from this transfiguration, we say, well, what is that all about? I think it's basically a preview of Jesus in His glorified form, in His glorified flesh. And He was treating Peter, James, and John to that, to, to show them what He would become. Right? To show Him how He would appear in power, in the glory and the coming of His kingdom. And of course, they witnessed that. And you go on, He says, some, here, some are standing here who will not taste death. And in, mo- and in this context, Jesus is speaking primarily to his, to his disciples. But we also find that John, who writes the book of Revelation, describing this very event, will live past the sacking of Jerusalem. So Jesus is telling the truth. He will actually live past that event and will see in history the Son of Man come in glory and power. And so what Jesus is giving them on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9 is sort of a preview of of what He will be in His appearing of judgment. So he's using that eyewitness to say, hey, I've seen it. I've seen the glorified Christ. This is going to happen. I've been given the preview. So so Peter is using his own eyewitness of this account to validate the judgment that will soon take place or to endorse it. He says, look, if you don't believe what I'm saying, if you think I'm telling fairy tales, I've gotten the preview. We've seen Jesus in glory. So there's no doubt in my mind that what I saw on the mountain was a preview of how Jesus will show up in judgment. Namely, He will visit destruction upon Jerusalem with all glory and power as the glorified Son of Man and be vindicated before the Ancient of Days. And that is the witness of His power. Let's get through one more and then we'll close today. Thirdly, there is the witness of His kingdom. And so we'll kind of see how this emerges. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and things that Christ was to receive as the exalted Son of Man and everything that accompanies that, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. These tags for the presence of God are so interesting. By the majestic glory, right? The splendor of God's presence. So this is God's voice booming from the heavens. And He says this, when they are on the mountain, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, so that should draw us back not only to the Mount of Transfiguration, but also to Christ's baptism, right? The Holy Spirit descended upon Him like a dove, and of course, a word from heaven came validating or endorsing Jesus' ministry. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We also hear, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Right? He speaks for me. Listen to His voice and obey Him. So this has some Old Testament uh, 
chords here. So if you want to turn very quickly to Psalm chapter 2, this is, this is where this is coming from. And here is where we get the idea of proclaiming a kingdom. Right? We're witnessing concerning a kingdom. So in Psalm 2, we read this. And our primary, our primary verses are uh, 7 through 9. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So once you combine this with what Peter is describing, we look at what is being spoken here in the Psalms, and we say this is a present abiding and growing reality. This isn't something we hurl headlong into the future. This is, this is going on now. The growth and proliferation of, of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the subduing of all nations. You are my son. Today I have begotten you, right? And then you go down to verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That's where we get the, the, this irresistible onslaught of Christ's kingdom. It may be rebelled against, but ultimately all resistance against it will fail because He is the Son of God with power bringing His kingdom to bear upon the entire cosmos. So we understand that. There's that decree. We also find this in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You could say that the destruction of Jerusalem represented the first footstool. In verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now listen to this, verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. So in, the, in, these, two first, in these first two uh, Psalms we've introduced here, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, is all about kingly authority being given to Jesus. That He is being proclaimed as King of kings and Lord of lords. And try as they might, people will rebel, but they will fail. Going back to Psalm 2, it says, Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and, wor and rejoice with trembling. That's what we are doing. We're telling people, you must worship the Lord. Do not perish in the way. Kiss the Son, right? Do homage to Him. Believe in Him. Embrace His saving provision. For His wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Right? The rest of it's going to be burned away. The rest of it will be thrown into the lake of fire. But those who believe will remain, for they will find their very refuge in their good King. So why rebel? Instead, bow the knee, repent from your unbelief, and believe in Christ. Embrace Him as Lord and Savior, for He is presented as such. So of course, these two Psalms go hand in hand with uh, Jesus presented in Daniel chapter 7. As before the Ancient of Days, as the, as the glorified Son of Man. So what a, again, what a privilege we have as God's people, right? To stand with Him, to identify with Him. One more. Isaiah 42.1, a Messianic Psalm. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, right? That's where in whom I am well pleased comes from. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So you see the connection here. What is Jesus doing when he shows up in judgment upon Jerusalem? He is bringing forth justice, right? And it begins with the people who rejected him. And as the gospel goes forward, yes, it is good news, but it is also bad news for those who reject the king. But in every sense, justice will be done. Either we trust in Christ, the, the, the satisfaction of judgment for our sin, or we reject Him, and of course, we will suffer His judgment ourselves. And again, what a great comfort. I think the comfort that comes for the church out of this is knowing that if we are in Christ, 
The Father is just as pleased with us as He is with His own Son. That is the comfort of the Gospel that we offer, right? When you believe Christ, when you embrace Him as Lord and Savior, God is pleased with you. And we find that it's blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, that we are members of His kingdom. That in this very scenario, Christ is demonstrating in a very clear, historical, and public way right, that He is King of kings, that He is Lord of lords, and that He is subduing His enemies, but also redeeming them through the good news of the cross. I mean, what power, what grace, and all that is offered to those who believe. But I believe that the warning there is very clear as well of what befalls those who remain in unbelief. And he gave a very clear example by visiting judgment in his coming in judgment upon Jerusalem. And of course, Peter begins with this. Yeah, we were eyewitnesses. We saw the preview. And then we saw the greater work of judgment upon the temple and that whole old system that was destined and doomed to fade with the proclamation of the Gospel. So those we see are our first few issues of dealing with testifying regarding the power of Christ's return. We have truth, we have glory, and we have a kingdom. And next Lord's Day, we will talk about the presence and hopefully tie all these loose ends together. But for now, my encouragement to you all is to meditate on those initial three things. When we testify, right, we are testifying of the truth of the gospel. And we are trying to, we are persuading men to turn their attention away from all that is mythical, all that is unreal, all that is really inconceivable, right, and bringing them to truth. But this is not made up. That the gospel is true. And that the Lord has indeed returned in judgment. He has returned in power. And that in doing so, to Him was given a kingdom that He has set up, or has been set up for Him, and that that kingdom grows. So it's also an encouragement to us. It's an encouragement to continue to embrace this gospel work. To not sit on, to not sit on the sidelines. To not claim early retirement. And I would say even more so, to not claim inability of unwor- or unworthiness, right? Of course you're not able. Of course you're not worthy. But Christ is able and Christ is worthy. And if you are in Him, He has made you worthy and He has made you able. So let us, again, consider how we can be involved in this kingdom work knowing that it is inevitable that it will overcome and span the entire world. That is our great hope. That is what we anticipate. And that is God's own proclamation. Well, let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and goodness to us and just getting into this text initially that, Lord, we can take these two pillars, these two Gospel pillars, the witness and the Word, and proclaim the power of Your return. A return that has not only happened, but a presence that is abiding. That You remain with Your people. That You vindicate Your own name. That You testify to the truth of Your own Gospel. Lord, help us in these three things. We know there's a fourth, but we can get to it later. Help us be faithful witnesses for that truth. That we would not be distracted. There is, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible to, to chase every way and manner in which cleverly devised tales come about and try to shift our focus away from the knowledge of You. May we be faithful as Peter was to help people know, to make known to them the truth. The truth that Christ has come in power and that He has and currently is destroying His enemies and setting up a kingdom in which, in which righteousness dwells and which will someday dwell in fullness. May we 
be faithful to witness to that power. May we also be faithful to witness for that kingdom, that kingdom that is set up, that kingdom that is growing, that kingdom that you have entrusted to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the only true, good, and righteous King. A King that will always execute judgment or justice and judgment. A King that will always do what is right. A King that is faithful to redeem even His own enemies. So a King of grace and goodness and mercy. May we trust this King all the more and love Him and treasure Him and be His witness to the nations. Lord, we know we face a daunting task. It is hard, especially in recent days, to see the apathy. In some sense, we'd rather see anger. We'd rather, we would rather see some kind of resistance put up, some kind of conversation, um, some kind of passion. And yet there is a lot of disinterest. And, and Lord, we, we find that we are in, in a similar circumstance to Peter's audience. We want to be faithful and there are some things out there that can tempt us to be discouraged. And it's a text like this that can remind us not to be, but to gird our loins and to be courageous and to stand boldly for your truth, knowing that you know those who belong to you and you will call your sheep because you are a faithful shepherd. So help us be those kingdom witnesses and to watch it grow and to worship you all the more for it. Bless us in our remaining time of worship. Prepare also our hearts for your table. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.